Hello, and welcome to Cover to Credits, the bi-weekly podcast where we discuss books and their movie adaptations. I'm Ian George. And I'm Adina Hilton. In this episode, we'll be discussing Edge of Tomorrow. All You Need is Kill was written by Hiroshi Sakurasaka and uh, published in 2004. And the film adaptation Edge of Tomorrow, or also known as Live, Die, Repeat, was directed by Doug Lyman and came out in 2014. Yes, so we have like a three title (laughs) experience going on. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And this is a uh, patron request. Yeah, our patron Tony asked us to do this episode. So shout out to Tony. We will read his thoughts on this book and movie combo at the end of the episode. Thanks again, Tony, for suggesting this to us. And it's also worth noting that this is a Japanese light novel, which I wasn't familiar with that term and that genre of fiction, but it's a really popular subgenre in Japan, which is mostly targeted kind of towards YA. It's shorter. It's action-packed. Um, I mean, it's light, exactly kind of what they say. Yeah, and from what I understand, a lot of times it leads to maybe becoming a manga. Like, yeah. it's almost like a precursor where, like, if it does well, if it's successful, it's a manga, then later. So this was also a manga, which I actually didn't realize it was a light novel at first. I thought it was just a manga. Uh, and But then the manga came out around the time the movie was coming out anyway, so I don't know if they were just trying to capitalize off of that. Yeah, very interesting because the book in Japan came out in 2004, and then they were possibly negotiating movie rights about around 2009, 2010. A script was written, it kind of got rewritten, and there are people attached usual movie stuff delaying production on this. And then, yeah, the manga came out in Japan around 2014, which is when the movie came out, too. It's so odd and funny and just interesting that, like, this book was the premise of a Hollywood action movie starring Tom Cruise. Like, it says that on the cover of the light novel. It has one of the (laughs) soon-to-be-a-movie starring Tom Cruise. And, like, the cover is, like, this edgy-looking anime teenager in like a Mexican and I'm like <laughs> Tom Cruise <laughs> <laughs> so kind of a very interesting I'd love to know more about like who discovered this or like who pitched this idea did Tom Cruise hear about just the movie in general and wanted to be a part or did he somehow become aware of it and he was pushing for it yeah I mean I know this light novel was super popular in Japan so I'm kind of surprised it took as long as it did to make a manga adaptation of it yeah because if it had a movie deal before it had a manga adaptation you think they would have gotten right on the manga yeah it seems like they would have done that had it become even more popular as a manga and then the movie rights, but that wasn't really the trajectory here. Yeah, it is just kind of interesting to see, like, a unique uh, process of an adaptation, like, of a different kind of genre from a different country and just kind of seeing how that how that took different routes, you know, with the manga and, you know, the film and everything. So Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I know the movie went through several script rewrites, just changing form in a lot of ways and taking many years to kind of develop as well. And it was interesting when it came out, I think this movie was a little underrated, like it didn't perform as well as they would have hoped, I think. And they th- that was also part of the reason they like rebranded the title. Yeah, they kind of live, die, repeat was the tagline for the movie. And then when it came out on Blu-ray, that kind of became the title of it. Because I actually noticed when I put uh, the Blu-ray, because we own it, when I put the Blu-ray in 
and the title comes up on the Blu-ray menu, it says live, die, repeat, colon, edge of tomorrow. <laughs> like it's flipping the. Yeah. And I, I guess I get it. Like since it didn't perform super well, they're trying to like trick people almost to look at it again, to be like, wait, what is this? Is this that movie that Tom Cruise is in? <laughs> uh, and I think since then, in the years since it came out, it has found a much larger audience. I think a lot of people recognize uh, what a high quality and fun sci-fi action movie this is. And so I think it's it, it was kind of a sleeper hit. It took a little while to like gain its fan base. But I think a lot of people recognize it now. Yes, but we've liked it since the beginning. We've liked it since day one <laughs> when we saw it in theaters. We've always liked it. This movie actually... I, I say this very uh, uncertainly, but it might be a movie that we watch like the most out of any other film we've talked about on the podcast. I know we watch it a lot. Just we on our own. like probably at least a couple times a year, right? Yeah. And I can't think of another movie we put on that frequently. <laughs> but I don't. It's just a good one to like turn on and and watch and laugh at and yeah, great we, action. We've shown it to like several people over the years because we're like, you have to watch this movie. Yeah, because so like good. we said, not many people watched it at first or like <laughs> knew about it. And we're like, we have to show you this. <laughs> we have to show you the way. <laughs> um, we're gonna. Refer refer to the main character uh, in the book and the movie as Cage. In the movie, it's like Major William Cage or something, Tom Cruise. Um, and in <laughs> the book, the main character's name is uh, Keiji Kiriya. Kaiji, I think, maybe. Kaiji. Um, but by the end of the book, his nickname is Cage anyway. Yeah, because apparently that's how the Americans pronounce his name. Like Kaiji? Yeah, cage. just kind of Cage is mm -hmm. a simplified version. Because a lot of the characters from the film are just named after their counterparts in the novel. Except for him, you know, apparently. But then at the end you realize like, oh, he is actually still he is kind named of after named it. after him. Yeah, and for simplicity's sake, we'll just refer to him as Cage throughout Obviously, uh, we have Tom Cruise playing him in the movie, you know, a 40, 50-year-old man. And <laughs> yeah. teenager in the book. So. Very different. And I mean, <laughs> Cage is, or I'm sorry, Tom Cruise is kind of like really on the cusp of being too old for this role. Yeah. I, I think the plot kind of excuses it because of how he ends up being sent to war. You know, you can kind of forgive it, but he is an older man being sent to war as like a <laughs> private, you know? Uh, so he is almost kind of like bordering on being too old, but I think it works. Yeah. Let's talk about the setup for this story, which is Alien Invasion, Ian. Classic Alien Invasion, the film... The film kind of compiles just a lot of real world footage. Uh, there's the, I remember, God, it was it in Russia or something, a meteor like crashing into yeah. the earth. It was like a really big news story for a short time. And so they use that footage. They use footage of like real war zones in real countries and people reporting on it. And so they kind of compile this with acted portions from like Tom Cruise and uh, Brendan Gleeson reporting on the war and the alien invasion. And it kind of gives it a sense of like reality and authenticity. Yeah. And also I think it's really effective how they don't show you the aliens at all at the beginning. Mm -hmm. It's not until the first battle that you see them. So it's like very suspenseful. Yeah, it is. It's kind of terrifying when you first see them. Yeah. They call the aliens mimics and there is the UDF, which is the United Defense Force, which is many different countries that have banded together to form an army to fight against the mimics in the movie they're kind of located mostly in europe 
in that area. Yeah. And the main battle that's going to be coming and is the feature of this story is them storming the beaches of Normandy, right? Yeah. Very yeah. D-Day-esque. Um, but in the book, it's more spread out. Like the conflict has gone on throughout the, the world in different places. I think it's interesting, too, that the movie really doesn't give us any reason for why the mimics are attacking and no one really knows. No, there's kind of a scene later on at a pub where people are arguing about like, oh, they're after minerals or they're after our water. And then it's kind of just like, who fucking cares? They're going to get whatever they're here for. They're killing us. And I think that's like, I kind of like the acknowledgement that like, we don't know and it doesn't matter at all. Yeah, you're in a war no matter what. The book is kind of more interesting where the book actually goes into detail about what's happening. And like the main character Cage talks about how when the mimics are out and about and in the book, the mimics kind of look more like frogs or starfish. Yeah. And I liked the way the manga depicted them. They're kind of like barrels, like with an open, like a big opening maw that's like lined with like weird teeth. Yeah. So kind of a cool design in the manga. But they they like eat soil and water and then they shit out like toxic chemicals. Yes. So they're kind of destroying the earth. Like, the seas are turning toxic, the land is becoming barren, and you can't farm. So it does kind of feel desperate. And we actually find out later in the book, like, randomly, that these creatures are actually nanobots sent from another planet to terraform Earth. Yeah, they're they're terraforming it for this, like, other civilization. And we even find out, like, the politics about it. Like, some people were like, well, what if there's intelligent life there? But then they decided to just do it anyway. And that, like, actually the nanobots, because it was mentioned a couple times that uh, the mimics are most closely resemble starfish, like, in their DNA. And that's because the nanobots that landed in the ocean actually, like, fused with starfish or like used that as kind of the building blocks of the creatures that came about. So we get this whole backstory, but we also get no context as to why we find out about it because no one, this isn't like information that any characters know. No, no one in the book knows this. And so it's just sort of dropped on us. Yeah. And it's like, okay. I mean, that's interesting, but also why are you just, you're like pulling me aside and you're like, listen, don't tell anyone, but these are actually nanobot creatures from another planet. Also, the the, the real aliens never show up to be like, we're here to live on the planet, <laughs> <No>. you know? <laughs> yeah, I, I think they're like, because I think it said they're like 40 light years away from another uh, solar system and that they'll just follow at some point. But the war has been going on for a long time. Yeah. It seems like in the. In the movie, we're not quite sure. The movie, I think it's like five years. Yeah, it's more recent for sure. But in the book, it's like, it's been 20 years maybe. Like, it's been a long time that this war has been going on, which is interesting. That yeah. it's just kind of this thing that, like, the main character grew up with. Yeah, and it's kind of always been a reality and part of his life. Yeah. Yeah. Very different explanations for the mimics, but they are aliens. They are attacking. And we have this united military force to fight them. In the movie, we have uh, Tom Cruise playing, you know, Major Cage, and he's sort of like a media relations person for the army, I'd say. He's doing public appearances. He ends up promoting this new jacket slash weapon suit technology. Yeah, that the soldiers are using to fight the mimics. And so he's kind of going around promoting the war, trying to get people to recruit, you know, 
And he has a meeting at the start of the film. He's flown into uh, England to London, I think, and has a meeting with a general played by Brendan Gleeson. And he doesn't know what this meeting is about. And I love how slimy Tom Cruise plays this character at yeah. first. Like, very shitty. And I love that about, like, he's not kind of your leading action hero at the beginning. He's just kind of a politician almost. And he's pitching the general about, like, how to improve his image maybe once the war is over. And, like, how to <laughs> evade any repercussions for, like, sending people to their deaths. Like, that's his character. Is like, how do I avoid conflict? And how do I get out of shit, right? <laughs> uh, he quickly finds out, though, that the general wants him to uh, basically be on the front lines of this invasion to film it for, like, uh, PR purposes. Yeah. He's like, I mean, you're a PR guy. I need you to do the best PR job right now. And, of course, Cage is like, oh, no, actually, you don't want me. I actually faint at the sight of yeah. blood. <laughs> and I love him, like, just laughing about it in just the most disgusting way possible. <laughs> you're like, this man is such slime. He's, like, trying to charm Brandon Gleason's character, who's just not having Stonewall. it at all. <laughs> and he's, like, kind of trying to, like, well, I know some other people that might be good for it. And he's like, no, this is an order, and you're definitely going. Which leads to Cage attempting to blackmail the general and being like, I can smear your name in the media uh, if, you know, you make me do this. <laughs> he's And he says, I want to not be on the front lines filming acts of valor and heroism tomorrow. And the general is like, don't worry, you won't be. <laughs> <laughs> and then has him arrested. Yes. He gets tased. It's wonderful. It's so funny. He wakes up and he's suddenly in this training center slash army headquarters and he's very disoriented trying to figure out what, what what's happening he's confronted by Farrell played by uh Bill, Bill, Paxton, Bill Paxton who is from Kentucky he's so Bill Paxton is so fucking good in this he's part. very good he's so funny he has this like whole speech about the fiery crucible of war <laughs> refining men <laughs> I also love he gives a little speech about fate and how fate is in your own hands. And yeah. how he's like, you might find that notion ironic, but trust me, you'll come around. Almost this like prophetic uh, speech. He's such a perfect drill sergeant type character. <laughs> yeah. Like he just goes off. Right. But he's just he has such a unique and funny personality. And Cage quickly realizes that the general has told everyone that he tried to desert. Yes. And that he's just a private which, I mean, he's too old to be a private, so. Yes. Okay. Um, and that he was impersonating an officer. He's not actually a major. And that he was trying to sneak off the base. And so now Farrell has made it his personal mission to make sure this man makes it to the battle. And has the chance to be reborn in the fiery crucible of battle. Cage is now being uh, forced into this position. We meet his new squad, J-Squad. J-Squad. Great group of people. Great, funny, immediately like likable group of misfits. And he, you're kind of introduced to all of them. It's kind of impressive that they honestly aren't a huge part of the story, but you do kind of identify and remember a lot of them mm -hmm. uh, moving forward because they become important later. Yeah, you've got Kimmel, who has the Mimic This shirt. <laughs> I love that shirt so much. Uh, who goes into battle um, with his ass out. Yep, ass out. Uh, we have Nance. Yes, who's like a hick person. Like pencil tucky. Pencil tucky, yeah. yeah. Uh, you have, oh God, 
Griff? Uh, Griff and Skinner mm-hmm. and Ford and the guy who doesn't say Merv? a whole lot. Maybe it's Merv. I can't remember. Yeah. But yeah, you just have this whole like group of characters that's excellent. Yes. We have the really great scene of Farrell, Sergeant Farrell. I think he's Sergeant. Uh, making them eat their gambling cards. Yes. <laughs> this is where he gives the whole speech about fate being in their own hands. It, yeah. It's great. So they strap Cage into his suit and they're on a plane and they're off to off to the battle. Yeah. It's very funny watching Cage be in this situation because he's just terrified. Yes. Right? He's so freaked out. They have like a funny line about there being a dead body in his suit. <laughs> He's like sweaty. I love how they don't hide how short Tom Cruise is compared to everyone. <laughs> and the moment when they're like boarding the plane and he tries to like waddle, waddle away. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk here about the suits a little bit because and they're different than the book. And I want to mention the book, too. But like in the film, it's only kind of vaguely understood the purpose of the suits like They're awkward, right? Yeah. And they certainly don't seem to make you faster. (laughs) So, like, they seem clumsy. And they seem to make you, like, stronger to a degree, right? But not even, like, that much stronger, I don't think. Because then there are bigger suits that are really strong. Like, that if you need to move a car, you have the bigger suit. Yeah. So And also, like, does enhanced strength help you fight the mimics much? It seems like the most useful thing on them is, like, just the fact that it holds your stuff. All like, your guns. Yeah, like all the guns. And it has like uh, like back mounted uh, like rocket launchers on it. But I, fe- I think it's kind of funny that like the purpose of the suits is a little vague and they almost seem almost like a hindrance as much as they are a help. It's just more of like, oh, this is like future technology. Yeah. But I mean, I think later on, though, when like Cage is actually doing like action hero shit and when you see uh, Emily Blunt. Uh, Rita doing cool stuff later like you're sold on it because of the suit so it does work like it doesn't not work but I I do find it funny how it's a little bit ambiguous like what the function or purposes of them specifically like they almost seem a little bit uh, flawed in a way. I mean, it's almost like just because it's sci-fi, they need to be in a cool suit. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and I mean, it's based on uh, the light novel, which we should mention that in the light novel, it is a more like fully armored, like robot suit. And that's how the manga depicts it too. Like you are like kind of covered in head to toe in like steel plating. Yeah. Because the, the weapons or the javelins that the aliens shoot, the mimics shoot, are like so strong and deadly. They'll tear through your skin. Yeah. So the best thing they can do is like be armor plated. Right. Yeah. And in that sense, like I think the suits make a little bit more sense in the book because in the film, once again, they're very exposed. They're not even like that protected by the suit either. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So yeah, different in both versions, but I think they both work. Yeah. I like them. Let's talk a little bit about Rita Vertasky played by Emily Blunt in the movie. Known as the Angel of Verdun slash the Full Metal Bitch. (laughs) Double names, (laughs) right? They they got their marketing spread out, right? Yeah, she was, she's like the army's most successful soldier and is just the hero. She had this epic battle in the movie. It's Verdun. In the book, it was a battle in Florida. I get why they were like, Verdun is better than (laughs) Florida. The Battle of Florida. Of Tampa. <laughs> the Battle of St. Petersburg. <laughs> but she like killed a bunch of mimics and she's super badass. And so in both the book and the movie, 
the army has kind of used Rita's image and her very iconic looking suit jacket thing as marketing for the army, getting people to sign up more for the army, being like a beacon of hope for people on the battlefield and also people just thinking she's really cool and badass. Yeah, like a morale boost like on the battlefield when people see her, right? So yeah, she's kind of like this larger than life hero at this point. Yeah. Let's get into the actual battle. The landing on, is this actually Normandy? (laughs) I don't know. I'm not sure. I think they they said the beach scene was a set. Oh yeah, but I mean like, is it supposed to be like Normandy that they're actually landing on? I think so. Okay. Yeah. I know, I I can only remember that, that they just keep saying it's France. Yeah. But I wasn't sure. Obviously the parallels to the invasion of Normandy are very strong. <laughs> uh, they are, they don't even get landed in their ship. They get shot out of the sky and have to like rappel down. You immediately see Kimmel get, get crushed. crushed. <laughs> uh, I mean, the, the, the battle is like very gruesome. And at first all you're seeing are these, uh, flying they keep calling them javelins but these kind of flying missiles missiles yeah projectiles kind of coming in over the hills and everyone's storming the beaches uh cage is just shitting his pants he's just terrified he can't get the safety off his gun so he can't even shoot that's kind of a running gag for a lot of this first part of the battle at one point he tries to run away and then like feral finds him and like propels him back towards the main Part of the battle. I mean, it's just a shit show, though. There is a scene where he sees Rita get killed in front of him. Yeah, which I kind of loved this because it makes me think of we discussed another adaptation this year of All Quiet on the Western Front. And a big part of that book is about how there's not really any heroes in war and people don't survive because they're really good. It's at just any, luck. A it's lot just of times. luck, you know, and you have Rita who's such a badass, and then she just gets shot with a javelin and killed, Mm -hmm. right? You know, she's as susceptible to luck as anyone else. Yeah, and I mean, he finally gets the safety off, is able to kill a mimic, which is very exciting, but then he's immediately overrun. And there's this part, and we're talking about the movie here specifically, where he sees this different-looking mimic. And in the movie, the mimics are definitely look more... I would say mechanical. Mm. Yeah, I don't know if I would call them mechanical in the movie. I mean, they feel organic, but they feel... I I kind of love how you can't quite describe them. Yeah. Like, when you see one, it kind of, uh, like, pulses, right? As it, like, shrieks before it... And the way they move is so erratic. Yeah. Like, it really feels unique to this movie where you're not even sure what you're looking at. Yeah, I do think... It is interesting, and there are organic elements to it, but I think there's almost like a, a mechanical or electrical aspect to it. I mean, maybe it. their inspiration was thinking of them as nanobots, the way the book... Yeah. I mean, the book, they're more organic, kind of built by nanobots, but maybe that's how they thought about it in the film, was like, what would a nanobot a combination, creature look like? Yeah, between combination between like a technological slash organic Yeah, creature. I love how they move, though. They're so quick. They're just terrifying. They have these like gaping mouths. That and... are weird colors. But Cage sees a blue one. Yeah. And it's big. A, a shiny one. A blue shiny like in, one. Like in Pokemon. <laughs> <laughs> and he manages to activate... Some type of uh, grenade or mortar, a claymore, 
uh, and blows it up. And of course, it's like acidic blood gets all over him. We get this terrifying shot of his like face dissolving. Gross. Super gross. (laughs) And then he snaps awake screaming and he's back on the base when he woke up after being uh, tased earlier. Yep. And it's like 24 hours before. Mm -hmm. And we're in the time loop, baby. We're in the time loop. Let's talk a little bit about how this happens in the book. Uh, Similar situation, except obviously Cage is a private. He's 18-ish. And he has signed up to join the military. He did not get uh, labeled as a deserter and thrown (laughs) into the army. Although he's still like a young recruit, right? He's been through basic training. Um but has not really been in any battles, and so he doesn't have a lot of experience. He's thrown into the battlefield. Things are really crazy, and he gets in a situation where he has a really mortal wound and is going to die. Yes. He's dying on the ground, and Rita shows up and comes up to him and begins to talk to him. Yeah. She makes these really weird comments about asking whether green tea is given to you for free in Japanese restaurants. Yeah. And you're like, what is she talking about? Only later on in the book do you realize that it's this strategy that she learned from her commanding officer when people are freaking out in battle to calm them down with just random small talk. Yeah. And she tells Cage here as he's dying, she's like, I'm going to take your battery pack. You're dying. I'll stay with you, though. You know? Yeah. So it's this moment of human empathy as he's dying on the battlefield. But... While she's with him, suddenly they get um, attacked by a lot of mimics. And so Rita starts fighting. She's obviously a badass. And as Cage is lying there, I think Rita's presence and her kindness to him inspires him to want to, like, go out fighting. Yeah. So he is able to, like, get on his feet. He sees one mimic in particular. And in the book, it's not clear what is different about it or what makes it stand out among the other ones. This is essentially the blue one from the film, but not very obvious. And so he charges that one and manages to kill it, like, in kind of a sacrificial way, right? Yeah. And then... Then he wakes up. Then he wakes up. Mm -hmm. Something I really liked was he wakes up reading this book, or he had been reading a book the night before, and it's like a mystery novel or whatever, and in the part he had been reading, they were talking about green tea. <laughs> and so in his mind, the whole weird read apart about her talking about tea, he was like, oh, that makes sense. I dreamt, dreamt about that because I was just reading that. Yes. So it almost like makes it easier for him to think that what he just experienced was a dream. Yeah. And in these early time loop lives that he lives in both the book and the movie, It's very much like confusion, not knowing what's happening, and in the book specifically, him being convinced that it was all a dream. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, so you you have phase one where he's (laughs) dazed. He's like, what happened? He's kind of going through these motions again. And I like in the film, Cage isn't trying to, like, convince anyone of him being a major or any of that. And it makes everyone kind of, like, be a little nicer to him. Like, Farrell is like... It's okay, man. Like, let me take you to J-Squad. Like, yeah. don't worry. Like, he's not as, like, hard on him because <laughs> uh, he's not trying to smooth talk everyone. But he's still just in a daze because he realizes, like, everything's repeating from this dream or whatever he experienced. And then he's going back into battle again. Yeah. Obviously, it didn't go well the first time. So the second time, he's just as freaked out. Um, And 
I think this time he in this in the second round he ends up saving Rita. Yes. And then gets hit himself and is dying. And <laughs> he has she's, a hole in his chest. Yeah, and she's like, "I'm gonna take your battery back." <laughs> <laughs> He's like, "What?" <laughs> yeah, and so. Like, he doesn't really know what's going on, but he's then he's like, okay, I need to tell someone. Because as it keeps happening, yeah. he's like, I need to just tell people that I'm in a time loop. Like, I need to explain to people. And I, I really love this because so this is the third time he's experiencing it. He's like, okay, I can prove it. And he, like, tells Pharaoh, <laughs> he's like, I know you're from Science Hill, uh, Kentucky. I know you have a letter in your jacket pocket <laughs> saying that I'm a deserter. Here's their gambling card game. Yeah, and he's like telling everyone their names and like things he already knows about them. And I kind of like that. I feel like this is partly due to maybe his like PR background that he's probably pretty good with names and remembering things about people because he hasn't really actually talked to them that much or, you know, hasn't lived it that many times yet. But he's already like remembered people and is like trying to prove <laughs> what's going on. And this smash cuts to him on the ship going into battle and his mouth is duct tape shut. Because <laughs> no one believes no him. No one believes him and he's trying to scream. And I love, though, that everyone's freaked out now. <laughs> like, they're all nervously watching him because he's desperately trying to say something through the duct tape. And they're like, what's he saying? What's he saying? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he he tries, to, like, to warn them that the ship is going to be shot out of the sky and on the ground this time, he tries to save Kimmel from being crushed by uh, the falling plane and gets killed himself. Yes. And this kind of leads to him now knowing that he can't convince anyone that he's telling the truth to just try to, like, save people on the battlefield. It doesn't feel like he really has a plan, but no. he's just trying to, like, do it better than last time. Right. Yeah. Like live longer. And he's not. And that's kind of the same thing that's happening in the book around the same time, too. There is a, a loop where he grabs someone's gun and just kills himself. <laughs> yeah, that was it was like the moment he wakes up, a friend of his is cleaning his gun. And he's yeah. like, can I see that? And he's like, yeah, be careful. The safety's off or it's loaded. He's like, cool. And then he just shoots himself and then wakes up like from two seconds before. Immediately. Yeah. So I love we get this montage of the film of him trying to save people learning as he goes and it's such a great montage and it's so funny it's very comedic but in a it just works like it's not too dark right no like at one point he's just running across the battlefield and he just gets hit by a car (laughs) and then it immediately cuts back and the music like starting back up like the music getting cut off when he dies and then it starts back (laughs) (laughs) i i this movie is such a good case study for how to get humor out of editing yes, and sound design. Yeah. Like, it does that so well. Like, just, you know, like you said, when he gets hit by that car and the music stops, <laughs> and then it, it cuts to the exact same shot again. Yeah. Just getting, just outrunning the car, right? <laughs> and, and then there's another part, too, when he's talking to Rita and asking her if she ever tried... Uh, passing her abilities on through sex. And he's awkward about it. And he's like, have you ever... Um, and he just makes like kind of a humping gesture. <laughs> but he's in his suit and you hear like the robot... Whirring? Yeah. <laughs> like the the mechanical noises of it. Like just little things like that they do so well to sell a joke, to sell the humor of a scene. Mm-hmm. And I don't... It just... It makes the whole movie work so well. Yeah. I especially love these like 
repetitive shots where you're seeing the same attempt over and over. Yeah. Right. And I think the movie does a really great job of alternating um, its depiction of time in different ways. Yeah. Like we'll see the one, the first attempt, the full loop. Right. And then the second time we see basically the full loop again. And then after that, we don't see the whole loop again, yeah. right? It shows us certain parts, and then it cuts, and we're at that same part again. Yes. And then later on, we'll be in a loop, and we don't know what attempt this is, right? We're yeah. not sure. And so I think the movie really works well with this interesting concept and, and takes it in different directions and unique directions that are really good for storytelling, but also really good for visual um communication visual communication yeah yeah uh at this point he is like he's also trying to save rita so he like tackles her it back into the the plane that she crashed in and he's like hold on there like wait two seconds and then he like shoots a mimic (laughs) through the ceiling that he couldn't see and then he's like wait okay now let's go and i love seeing rita's expression because she's like what's happening yeah what's but also like she knows something And he tells her, like, the plane's going to blow up. We got to go. And she kind of drops her sword and says, find me when you wake up. (laughs) And he's like, what? And then the plane explodes and kills both of them. Yeah. But I I love that moment of her seeing what he's doing and recognizing it. Yes. And being like, I know that he's in a time loop. Mm -hmm. It's so good. It's so well done. It is so well done. Um, he goes and finds Rita. It takes him a few tries to get to her. (laughs) Once again, the humor of it, him like trying to like do this maneuver where he rolls under a truck to escape, uh, from his squad, from his squad. And the first time he does it getting run over (laughs) and Tom Cruise's like yelp when he gets hit by the car, just the, (laughs) crushed. And also, uh, Sergeant Farrell being like, what, what What the hell were you doing? God, it's so funny. But he has this whole strategy of escape and he finds Rita and is able to tell her, like, I'm going through something and I think you know what it is. Yeah. Rita is immediately, she doesn't need proof from him. She's like, come with me. And she introduces him to this other guy, this scientist, Carter. And between the two of them, they explain to him that what's happening to him with the time loops happened to Rita. And that's why she became this badass hero, right? Yeah. Because she had the time to train and become good and loop endlessly. And she explains that him getting the blood of that blue mimic, which they call alphas, on him reset the day. Yeah, or gave him that power Because that's the power the aliens have, that when one of those blue mimics is killed, the Omega, which is kind of like the central hub of the aliens, like they're like a hive, right? And that's the queen. The Omega is able to reset the day with that knowledge of the battle and how it goes. And that's how it's able to like conquer worlds, right? Mm -hmm. And that Cage is just now tapped into that power. And this is essentially the same for the most part as the book, right? Yeah. The way these creatures work. And the resetting of the day. So now they have a plan because Rita says you will be you will start to get visions. The more you reset the day, you will start to tap into the Omega and see where it's at. Yeah. And if we know where it's at, we can go and kill it and end this war. If we kill the Omega, then all of them will die. Yeah. And she kind of explains that she lost the power as well. And that like if you get 
kind of drained of your blood or if you need like a blood transfusion, it robs you of the ability to reset the day. And that's what happened to her. Yes. So we kind of have an understanding of the stakes and like where the story is going forward. I want to say something I love about this is Rita's character being a a woman of action, quick decision making, and kind of like no nonsense, I think really helps the story move, right? Because every time Cage comes to her, he's like, listen, I have the looping thing that you have. And she's like, right, let's go. Let's do it. Let's, you know, let's start. (laughs) And it fills in a lot of the blanks because like, you know, each time he's resetting the day, you know that they haven't known each other that long. But she doesn't need that time either. No. To like have an understanding of what's going on. Like based on her character, she's like, okay, you're looping. You have a plan to get us off that beach. Explain the plan up and until current. Yeah, and let's yeah. keep working on it, right? <laughs> and she has this like strong understanding of not only the time loop, but just like, I know what we need to do right now. She's very single-minded and determined and focused. And I love that about her. And it plays well off of Cage being so inexperienced, right? Yes. She is the better fighter and she starts to train him. We have some really great scenes of them training. And I another thing I love about Rita, Ian, is that she's just <laughs> like, listen, I can kill you as often as I want and I will do it with pleasure. She's constantly killing him. I love, <laughs> I love the recurring gag of this, right? Yeah. Like, anytime he gets like really injured in the training she just has her gun out and she's like all right let's like, start over let's start over and shoot some <laughs> or like later on she'll just like have her gun and be like okay let's just let's let's i'm bored this. i'm bored she's literally like i'm bored like <laughs> let's restart the day <laughs> and he has to like talk her down at points from like shooting him it's so funny it does make you wonder though like from her perspective when she shoots him and does that She's not experiencing the reset firsthand. Is she just trusting the process that, like, y- y- do you do you know what yeah. I mean? Like, we follow Cage's perspective of when he gets shot, he goes back. Yeah, what happens to her? Yeah, did she just <laughs> shoot a man like in the middle of the the training facility? And, then and is everyone's like, like, whatever. All right, <laughs> let's just keep going. There's kind of a dark subtext to that if you, like, think about it. Unclear. I do love the comedy of these situations, though, <laughs> yeah. where he's, like, limping on the ground because his leg is broken. He's like, I'm fine. I'm and she's okay. like, I'm going to shoot you. <laughs> and he keeps, when he wakes up, seeing that bus pass with full metal bitch and her face on it. Yeah. It's so good. It's great. I love it. Um, in the book, though, he does not train with Rita. And instead, he trains with Farrell, who is his commander in the book. Not from Science Hill, Kentucky, I don't think, and not played by Bill Paxton, obviously. <laughs> um, but he is this person that Cage actually looks up to and admires and can tell that just from being in a lot of battles, he has experience fighting in the jacket, which is something that Cage needs to learn, and also knowing how to um, have like really good reflexes in battle. There's something very anime about this part, or yeah. like manga-ish, where he... He finds out that there is like, or he knows there's a mechanism inside the suit that kind of calibrates it, basically to make sure that you don't break your own arms or like limbs in the suit because like the suit is powerful. And so there's like limiters, but those can be turned off 
and actually make you a better fighter if you know how to do it. You're right. That is very like manga. Yeah, anime. right. And so he's like, I have to train to like know how to do this, and uh, I have to level up. Right, I have to become stronger this way. So that just read to me as being kind of a a, a big trope of anime. Yeah, he has this whole strategy. He has this whole structure in his day where he trains with Feral. He also um, ends up talking to this engineer, Shasta, who designs him a battle axe, kind of like Rita has in the book. It's interesting in the movie, Rita has kind of like a machete, like a sword. Which also feels very anime to me. Like that look of Rita's big sword that she uses, which is so cool in the film watching her. So cool. But I'm like, that feels like a nod. I mean, it's it's a nod story-wise to the book because she uses a big melee weapon in the book. Mm -hmm. But just visually, I'm like, that's anime, baby. <laughs> <laughs> and I just want to take a little break uh, from the story and mention the three women characters <laughs> that are in this light novel. The big three. The big three. We have Rita, obviously. We have Shasta, who is the engineer who gives Cage his axe. And then we have Rachel, the cook. Um, and all of them are described in the way that I find really annoying and very common in Japanese manga and anime, which is like, oh, what do their boobs look like? <laughs> but tell me about their boobs, And though. the shape of them. <laughs> like, in more detail now. Give me cup sizes. Uh, in the manga, there's definitely, like, panels that are very, like, oh, over God. the top with yeah. the boobs. Or, like, a woman is naked. For some reason, even though there are no scenes of them being naked in the book, they've made it into the manga somehow. But I just have to read this part uh, of the book here. Rachel Kisagari, a civilian posted over in cafeteria number two. A snow-white bandana, neatly folded into a triangle, covered her black wavy hair. She had healthy, tan skin and larger-than-average breasts. Her waist was narrow. Of the three types of women the human race boasted, the pretty, the homely, and the gorillas you couldn't do anything with, save ship them off to the army, I'd put her in the pretty category without batting an eye. (laughs) Good to know there are three categories of women. (laughs) The three types of women. Thank you for that explanation. I also just love how he describes her breasts as larger than average. Yeah. Like, is is it supposed to be hot? But he's also describing it in the most clinical, sterile way that you possibly could. There's another scene, again, with Rachel, where she comes into the scene where he is actually ends up in a fight with another soldier in the cafeteria. Salvation had come from an unexpected quarter. I turned to see a bronze-skinned woman standing beside the table. Her apron-bound breasts intruded rudely on a good 60% of my field of view. Like, what do you mean? I don't know what you're saying. Like, why would you say it that way? Like, what does it mean, Ian? Her apron-bound breasts rudely intruded on a good 60% of my view. Like, they're coming into frame. Like, they're, they're moving they're up for the attack. They're just floating in. <laughs> like, the, the DVD icon on a, on a paused yes. DVD. Like, they're just floating around. You know, ladies, as women, right? When we're just standing... And our boobs just keep moving of their own accord. They're like, I'm going to go this way. Like they're I'm in zero go G. Way. Like they're yeah. just kind of <laughs> wafting about. They're just blocking men's field of vision all the time. They can't help look at them in <laughs> because we're always putting them in their faces. Why? Why is it like this? I don't know. It's so stupid. <laughs> uh, like, I'm kind of shocked that, like, Rita doesn't, like, he he definitely describes her physically, too, and maybe I'm just not remembering 
super well or like it's a part I skimmed possibly. But like, I feel like she doesn't get sexualized nearly as much as I was expecting. Well, we're told that she's rather flat chested, but he doesn't mind. But He's okay with that. So I, I guess just like for the main character, I expected True. her to be like the most sexualized, the most boobed, but it's instead just this random cook. <laughs> also, where does she go? She just disappears in the story. She's just around <laughs> and he's like, oh, she's hot. And at one point she asks him out and that goes nowhere. And then it's like, I, I don't like what. Why? I what don't is the know. Purpose I don't know this? why she's in the story. <laughs> To have a third woman, Adina. Yes. <laughs> stories at least have to have three women in it, right? Isn't... Well, there's three types of women, according to this <laughs> book. Uh, so we are at the beach montage now. They're trying to figure out a way to get off the beach so that when they know when, where the Omega is, they can get to it. Yeah. And at this point in the movie, Cage starts having visions where he sees a potential location for the Omega. So they're off the training ground. They're on the beach now. And we just see scene after scene of Cage trying to make it so they both survive and get off the beach. But the problem is that Rita kind of has to learn the strategy for the first time every day. And he's the one who can remember it, right? Yeah. And she can. I think it's interesting because the movie takes a different approach to the book. The book is almost like oh, he becomes better in the battlefield just because he has so much experience, right? Whereas the movie, Rita is telling him, like, it's not enough to be good or have quick reflexes. You need to remember. Like, you need to just remember the moves on the battlefield. Like, we go from point A to B, shoot this thing, move here, do this. Like, your memory is your best weapon, essentially, to know what's going to happen, and that's what you have to use. And, like, yeah, Cage is also becoming just better in combat generally, but he's also having to, like, map out this whole situation, right? And we see Rita getting killed over and over again. And you start to see like the emotional toll that this is taking on Cage. Yeah, I think this is interesting because we have a scene around this time where Cage just kind of takes off. Instead of going to the battle, he like steals a motorcycle or something and goes into London and ends up at a pub. And he's just kind of sitting there and watching the battle unfold kind of on TV like everyone else. When suddenly he kind of looks out over the bridge and sees that the mimics have come to England, right? And this is his realization that the whole time that he's been living out this battle in France, that there's a wider invasion going on. And that this is like the final assault by the aliens worldwide. Yeah, I think this really gives you an idea of the stakes here in a really... I think, important moment in the film. Yes. Where he's starting to lose hope and and wonder, like, can I, maybe I don't need to do this. Like, do I need to do this? Yeah. But it's like, if I don't do this, everyone's lost, right? Yes. It's also a little bit of an explanation as to, like, well, why doesn't he, like, what happens if he keeps living or, like, if he doesn't fight? And it's like, he's not going to live long no matter what, right? (laughs) I have one criticism at this point in the film, Adina, and... It's not a big criticism, but it just stands out to me, I think, because the rest of the movie, the stakes and the plot are so well communicated and you know what's going on and you feel the emotional beats of everything. But during this part of him 
watching Rita die over and over again. And he's frustrated. And there's a scene of him training like in the training facility at night and Rita sees him. And uh, he makes a comment at one point about like, we can't get off the beach. Yeah. But then they do. But then they do. And I'm like, was this leading up to something that was cut? Maybe. That's what I wondered. Or if something got shuffled around or changed. Because it really feels like he's saying, we need to approach this differently. Yeah, but then nothing happens to be Yeah, but then then we go into the scene, which is like their final assault or like them finally executing the, the plan perfectly, right? And getting off the beach. And then it's like, oh. Okay. Okay. I thought that was going to be more dramatic, but... Yeah, I thought something was going to need to change, right? Like, maybe that was the point when he's like, I can't take Rita with me, which is something that happens kind of later... I know. ...in the story, so that's just, like, one of my only gripes with the film is, like, it feels like it's implying something that never pays off. I agree. I think in in the plot, it's a weak point where yes. if you get kind of push on it, you're like, well, what was this supposed to be? What is it? Yeah, like you said, it feels like something's missing almost. Yeah. But um, uh, the, the, the scene of them on the beach, though, this final one, is so good. It's so cool. There's so many great shots. You have Rita doing flips and chopping things with her sword. I love the shot of Cage kind of running a circle around that crater yes. that J-Squad is in and shooting the alien he knows is in the dirt. And them just, like, watching They're like, him. like, is that Cage? <laughs> And like he does cool slides and like and all and so much of this is done practically. Yeah. Uh, I know just from reading about this film what a huge task it was to shoot all this stuff because they were wearing real suits like real bulky. I mean, I think they made them as light as they could like they weren't steel. But actually, Emily Blunt said in an interview that. The first time she put the suit on, she cried because it was like 80 pounds. Oh, my God. And she's like, I can't wear this for like five months of shooting. I can't. And she was like panicking. Uh. And I guess (laughs) Tom Cruise was just like, hey, get it together. And like was like, don't be a pussy. (laughs) And she kind of laughed and then was like, "Okay, we can do this. But (laughs) Tom Cruise kind of like snapped her out of it and kind of like gave her a focus. And they were able to obviously do everything. But like. There's a lot of physicality to this, but I think that's what makes it all work so well. It feels physical. Yes. Yeah. The movements feel like they're in something heavy. Yeah. And I think that's why that, like, even though I was joking earlier that, like, the context of the suits and what they do is kind of vague, but it works because you're watching them do all this crazy shit in them. And it looks awesome. And it looks so cool. (laughs) And I think it sells you on it where, like, if... They instead were cutting to like very obvious CGI parts. Then it would be like, okay, well, obviously they're in these heavy suits that they couldn't do anything in. So they're CGIing them around. (laughs) But when you see them doing it, even though, you know, it's, you know, special effects still, it sells you on it. Yeah, it really works. And I got to say, I really love Emily Blunt in this role. Yeah. I mean, both Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt are doing an amazing job. Um, But... I don't know. She's just really awesome in it. And I, I love that she was able to kind of like, she, she's had other action movies after this. Yeah. Kind of leverage an action career. Absolutely. She's great. Something else I want to point out too is, and without getting into like the end of the film though, but like this movie is kind of playing with a trope that a lot of people have issue with, which is there is a chosen one hero main character who is a rookie or doesn't know what he's doing. And then he meets a super badass woman 
who is better than him, better than him, but she's not the chosen one. And so she has to train him. So at the end of the movie, he can do all the cool stuff and like win. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And that's kind of the Matrix. That's kind of it's a lot of movies like that trope happens a lot. And even though this movie plays with that, I think it works because Emily Blunt isn't sidelined at the end of the movie. No. By the end of the movie, they are fighting side by side and they each have like equal weight as far as like what they're able to do. Yeah. And he's also not like a chosen one character either. Like it's just something that happened to him. And she is very strong in the film. And like it's never just like. She's, she doesn't get captured for the third act of the <laughs> yeah. film and he has to save her. He has her. to rescue her. Yeah. So even though it kind of skirts the edges of that trope, I still think it works really well despite that. Yeah, I think so too. Let's talk about the scene where they are finally off the beach and now they're trying to select a vehicle, Ian. <laughs> yes. They end up with a minivan with a trailer behind them. Uh-huh. It's a little bit nuts where there's some mimics. They have to shoot them. They have to eject the trailer. Yeah, it works out. It it does. We get some scenes of that or a scene of them driving and they're talking and getting to know each other. And like Emily Blunt or Rita is very kind of guarded. And I, I think this part is so effective, too, because we are now in a portion of the film that Cage has lived that we haven't seen. Yes. So he's telling us things that like. Uh, she has told him that we've never heard. Like, you told me your middle name. Mm-hmm. Or you told me about Hendrix. And she's like, when did I tell you about Hendrix? And yeah, and we're in- like, who's Hendrix? Who's that, right? <laughs> uh, they end up getting to a farmhouse. And th- there's a helicopter parked. Parked? Do you park a helicopter? There's a helicopter sitting out back. <laughs> and But it's revealed that Rita has been injured. And so... Cage is like, let's tend to your wounds first and then we'll like figure things out. Yeah. We have this extended scene where he's like, have some coffee and oh, uh, you like it with sugar, right? And then he's putting the sugar and he's like, oh, wait, three sugars. And I love as we're watching this, we're seeing Rita's face and she's also coming to the realization that we are as viewers, which is how many times has this happened? Yeah. And so she confronts him on it. And I love this because now we're almost being put in Rita's perspective. Yes, yes. As she's experiencing it for the first time, but Cage is not. It changes up the formula of the time loop to, like you said, now we're out of Cage's perspective. Yeah. And in Rita's, where we don't know what's going on, but Cage does. Mm -hmm. And that realization that... Cage has lived this already. And she's like, you know where the keys are to the helicopter. And he's like, yes, I do. And she's like, can you fly it? He's like, I'm not bad. Yeah, I'm not too bad. Uh, And so she's pissed off about this. She's like, we're wasting time. Let's go. And he kind of he reveals to her like, you can't come or you're going to die. Like, I have tried every which way because there's uh, mimics in a field over there. And as soon as we start the helicopter, they attack And you keep dying and I can't save you. He wants her to stay there because he's afraid they're going to kill the Omega, right? He's like, if you die and I have to go on alone and I kill the Omega, you'll be dead forever. Yeah. Like, I won't get to reset the day and you'll be here. And he says, like, I wish I didn't know you, but I do. Yeah. You know, that idea that he really cares for her. And it's very one-sided, but it's not creepy because he's never done anything to make it seem romantic between them. It just feels like 
he knows her and he has connected with her so many times that he doesn't want to lose her. Yeah, it's very sweet. And I love kind of realizing what he knows about her and uh, like just realizing the depth of how much he cares for her. And like you said, like, like maybe there's a romantic undercurrent to it, but it's really more platonic and a, a sense of like she's someone that he trusts and cares for and he wants to do everything he can mm-hmm. to save her. But she won't stay behind. And so she gets in the helicopter and ends up dying. And at this point, Cage is like, okay, I need to just do this without her. Because maybe if I go off on my own, she'll somehow survive. Yeah, but I mean, she dies in the battle. I know. So, like, I think he's kind of letting her die almost. Like, I can't save her. I have to stop trying. But maybe if he, like, doesn't... He's not with her when she dies. He'll feel less responsible. Yeah. So he's like very numb at this point. I love him getting ready for battle. And he's like, I need (laughs) 10 more clips of ammo. I need like two more mortars and an extra battery, (laughs) which the extra battery detail is smart because his suit always dies on the way to the farm. But then this time he has the suit on and was able to kill the mimics. Yeah. Takes off in the helicopter. He gets to this dam in germany where he believes the omega is based on his visions he goes to shoot it and it's not there yeah and instead he gets attacked by two mimics and he gets injured and is bleeding and the mimics are just standing there watching him bleed Mm -hmm. and he realizes that like they're after their power back yeah they want him to bleed out it's a little unclear like is it the bleeding out? It, it couldn't be the bleeding out that would make him lose the power, right? Like it's the re- maybe if you lose enough blood, maybe it's a ratio of how much blood <laughs> is in you, or maybe they like can feed off the blood or like do something with his blood to like take the power back. I don't know. It's unclear. I think they do a good job of like not addressing it too much, but it is clear what they're doing and like why they would want that. Because in the book, it's never really explained how the mimics would handle Cage. Yeah. Like, how would the mimics... They know that Cage exists and he's using their power. But how would they take him out? Yeah. They can't just kill him because he'll keep resetting. Yeah. How would they fix this? Yes. So this movie... The the movie gives us kind of more of a reason as to, like, what the mimics are up to. Mm Mm-hmm. Although he's able to kill himself, luckily. He drowns himself. (laughs) He has a lot of experience at it. (laughs) So he's able to kill himself and keep the power. I want to take a little bit of a break here and talk about the book, because the book gives us a perspective shift where we're in Rita's perspective now. Yes. It's revealed right before this shift, Rita says something to Cage about, like, how many loops is this for you? Yeah. So now we know that she knows what's going on, similar to the film, although this is, like, halfway through the halfway. book. Halfway, yeah. So after we are after this is revealed to us, we get the shift into Rita's perspective. We hear all about her backstory in this small town in America, in, like, a cornfield somewhere. And the war is real for her family and for her town, but it's very far away for them until one night when she's 15, when some mimics kind of go up the Mississippi River and end up attacking her village. And her both of her parents are killed. And Rita just has to be taken in by like other family members for a time. And as soon as she can, she signs up for the war. I think the book gives us some interesting details here about how she's actually a really skilled soldier on her own, even before the looping happens. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, it, it wasn't just it wasn't only the looping that made her like a total badass. Like she actually had a, a talent for it to begin with and joined like a special forces squad before the looping happened and then ended up looping in one of her battles and had this character, her commanding officer, Hendrix, which is the same name that's used in the movie. Actually, Yeah, I know. A lot of the names are the same about someone that she couldn't save. Right. That like in her loops. And somehow in in the end where she does break out of the loop, she's not able to save this man who was very kind to her in a moment where she needed it. It's very strange how Cage in the book has like no backstory. I know. And like no characterization. Oh, the librarian, Ian, that he oh, fell in love with. Oh, yeah, he loved the librarian. <laughs> and she broke his heart. And he's never gotten over like it. Like all librarians. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but then we get go into Rita's perspective and it's like, Here's where she grew up. Here's what her father was like. He was really into coffee, and that's something that, like, <laughs> she she enjoys now, right? And they died tragically, and that motivated her. And then, like, here's her backstory with, like, the looping power. And it's so odd that Cage is so flat as a character, and we've been with him for so long. Yeah. And also, he's just, like, I don't know. It's similar with Rita's perspective, but with Cage... Everything is just so melodramatic <laughs> and everything's about war and like the cold hand of death will <laughs> will grab us in, in, in hell when we're <laughs> in hell fighting in hell. Like he talk, he compares things to hell like so often, but he's just very boring and you don't know anything about him and he's just one dimensional. So it really caught me off guard when it went into this backstory for Rita and I was like, OK, this is reading more like a book now. Yeah. And I, I really like her perspective, too. And she has a more robust understanding, too, of like the mimics and the whole system of the looping. And this is where we get the book explanation for this. And I'm going to be up front and say that I don't fully understand this. And I don't either. <laughs> so there are the mimics and they have antennas. One of them has an antenna. Is it an actual antenna? Or I don't some, know. I, I think it's just a metaphorical antenna. One of them is an antenna or something. And somehow when Cage and Rita ended up killing the antenna ones, they got close enough to it that their brains were able to kind of mimic or interpret that electrical signal that those antenna alien mimics had. And so now they have that power because that power is to... Like, reset the day. Well, I mean, it, it's the same as the film, except instead of the blood being yeah. the thing that transferred the power, it was just kind of a, an electrical pulse. And then there are also servers, Ian. Yeah, this is where I start <laughs> to, like, lose the thread. There are server mimics, which, which house, like, the data so that they can back up the day somehow. And so Rita talks about how she had to figure this all out on her own. And that you have to kill the antenna uh, mimic. Then you have to kill all the backup servers. And yeah. then you kill the main server. And that's how you get out of the time loop. And I'm like, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is that, like, that gets you out of the loop of the day. But you still retain the power. Yeah. Because then she talked about continuing to do battles where she would do the battle once and I think purposely get killed just to like see what the strategy was and how things played out. And then the second time she would do all the killing that she had to of the mimics to like break that loop. Right. Yeah. And this was confusing for a number of reasons. I think that part of it is that Cage 
realizes, well, I don't know. So, like, I, I don't know why she retains the power afterwards. Yeah. And what that, I guess the power is just to keep looping if you die. Unless she has to, every time she's in battle, kill an antenna again to get the power again. I don't think that's it, though. Yeah. I think that she just still has it. Like, permanently has the power. Yeah. But also, it seems like, but also, it seems like she doesn't have it currently when Cage has it. Yeah. But I think she is supposed to still. Yeah. So I really don't understand. Or is it just that she never dies because he always dies first? Yeah. And so she can't loop because he's looping before she has the chance to loop? Maybe. Like, what if she looped first? Would it, like, somehow he... I don't know. I'm confused. I'm I'm very... I don't think the book explains it very well. And if you've read the book and, and understand it, you know, perhaps we're not getting something. But I I do think that if it's not clear, it's more the fault of, like, the way it's told rather than our understanding. I think a big part of it is... All time travel makes no sense yes, to a degree, yes, right? Yes. So it's the story's job <laughs> to simplify it as far as here are the stakes and here what here's what we're doing moving forward, right? Yeah, and here are like the vague rules. And like this is how it makes sense, even though if you think about it like too hard at all, it won't make sense. Like I think I, I actually think Edge of Tomorrow, in terms of like the resetting the day thing, kind of does make sense in a lot of ways. But like you know, a part where it doesn't make sense is like uh, Rita shooting him yeah. to restart the day because you're like, well, that's not restarting it for her. As far as I understand, she would just be murdering a man <laughs> and then continuing on. Right. <laughs> so there are moments. But like you don't really question that at least the first time you're watching it. No. Cause you're just in it. Yeah. And the movie does a good job of continuing to go and you still understand the stakes of and what the rules are. And you're just having a good time. Yeah. But I think the book just tries too hard to explain it. And just gets more confusing. And you're just like, there's no way this is going to make sense. <laughs> just stop. Just stop. Just Let's keep going. Yeah. I, I don't need to understand. <laughs> you're still explaining it to me. You're explaining it too much. <laughs> uh, getting back to the movie, though, um, after Cage realizes that the visions were a trap, he tells Rita and the scientist Carter, he's like, the visions were a trap. And it was the same situation for Rita when she was having her visions when she was in her own loop. Um, so they reveal that Carter has developed this prototype mechanism that is supposed to be able to tap into the Omega's mind, frequency, whatever. Yeah, through an alpha or because they have the power, they think it'll work on Cage. But Carter mm -hmm. wasn't able to... Uh, develop a new one and his working prototype is like locked in a vault at Whitehall because they thought he was crazy <laughs> but they're like maybe he's not so let's just hold on to this I guess <laughs> so the general has it yes so their new plan is to inf infiltrate Whitehall talk to the general and get the prototype um again this is a situation where as we're watching it we know this is not the first time we see yes. them going through they have to like walk through very carefully to avoid <laughs> all the guards and people in this facility and they talk to the general, and this is uh, Brendan Gleeson again giving, like, a stone wall of a performance. Has Brendan Gleeson ever played a character that is, like... Warm and Warm kind. and you like him? <laughs> oh, I know one. Uh, 28 Days Later. 
Oh yeah, he is very likable. Poor in that. guy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, so so Cage sits down and he gives him this whole rehearsed speech where he's like, because you have to convince him, or Cage has to convince him in like three minutes that he is actually experiencing a time loop. And he does it by being like, your secretary is about to walk in and say this thing. You're going to get a call saying this thing. I know what you're thinking already. You think this is crazy, <laughs> but... And he's like just rattling off. Trying right? to convince him. I love Rita kind of like wanting to shoot someone <laughs> again. This is so great for her character. She's yeah. getting bored, Ian. She is. She's like, I-, I need to shoot someone. It could be you. It could be the general. I don't care. I'll go on a killing spree. <laughs> uh, and he has to talk her down. But I, once again, I feel like this is where Cage's like PR background comes into play, like his smooth talking and being able to explain something like really effectively in a short amount of time. And they're able to convince him that this is real. And he opens up the wall safe and gives them the device. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they make one attempted escape, but they are uh, cornered outside of the building. So then Rita shoots Cage <laughs> and we cut to a different escape out of a parking garage. Yeah. Cage uses the device, finds out that the Omega is looking at some art in the Louvre. Yeah. It's like... I've, Filming v- Beyonce's latest music video. <laughs> like, I've always wanted to see the Mona Lisa in person, never gotten around to it. So they know the location of the Omega now, but unfortunately, before they can reset the day or get out of the situation, uh, they are... And I love this shot. A guy in a uh, a jacket suit... A big one, like, (laughs) smashes the front of the car in a really cool way. And they're both knocked unconscious, and Cage is bleeding out. And so he wakes up in a field hospital. He's been given the blood. And his power is gone. And the power is gone. We see when he opens his eye, like, the black receding receding from his eye. I think this is really funny because it's something I didn't question until this moment. But, you know, Rita said earlier oh, I woke up in a field hospital with blood in me and I was out of the loop. But the question is, well, how would you know you're out of the loop unless you, you die yourself and, and you, you don't. just don't come back? <laughs> and now I know. And Cage just has to be, he, he just says like, I feel it. Like I'm out of the loop. I feel it. And yeah. you're like, okay, that's a good. I'll in- accept it. All right. <laughs> We've never been told about this feeling until now, but all right. But it did dawn on me that like, that is kind of, um, a writing trap. Like, how do I explain <laughs> that he's out of the loop without him just dying? Yeah. Right? <laughs> and the movie ending. And the movie <laughs> is over. <laughs> we're, we're in the finale, though, of both the book and the movie, and they're very different. So we're going to talk about them separately. We're going to continue and just talk about the ending of the movie now. Yes. So uh, Cage and Rita escape the, the hospital they get back to the military base and this is it now because Cage can't reset the day and they have to destroy the Omega before the invasion. So they need a team. Yeah. A, a, a team of uh, uh, rebels. Rebels. Thank you. I'm like, what, what am I? What, rogues. What's rebels. rogues? Yeah. Uh, so they go and recruit J-Squad. Yes. I love that Cage is doing his best to convince them. He's rattling off all these facts to them. Well, I love that you don't even see him do it. He talks to one guy, Skinner, Skinner, and he's like, what could you say that could possibly make me believe this? And then it just cuts to Skinner being like, he told me the name of my kindergarten teacher. (laughs) 
and he knows about you and he's just like I love it that they just cut that part out and it's just Skinner immediately being convinced again using like the visual and editing yes to yeah tell a good story a great joke out of the edit of cutting to Skinner just being totally convinced they're still not willing to follow him until Rita shows up and is like you guys in? And they're like, hell yeah, full metal bitch. <laughs> yeah. So they uh, they escape. I love we get one moment of Sergeant Farrell being like, where's J-Squad? Uh, they, they stole one of the planes. They are on their way to uh, Paris. And, you know, Cage is kind of explaining, like, the situation. He's like, we have to kill this Omega. They specifically say, if you see an Alpha, don't kill it. Because that'll reset the day for the Omega and they'll know we're coming. So just like take a hit. Right. Yeah. Uh, so pretty dark. We know that the stakes are like the very stakes, high. Yeah, the stakes are very high. And it is kind of like implied to be a suicide mission. They get shot down, I'm guessing, by some kind of missile system protecting the Omega. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. And so their their drone ship or whatever goes down. We lose a bunch of people in J-Squad, and then we're kind of just left with Griff, Skinner, and Ford. And Griff and Skinner end up having to make, like, a final stand so that Ford, Rita, and Cage can use the uh, ship to kind of plow their way across this field to get into the Louvre. It is kind of disappointing because i wish we could have gotten more action out of j squad i know i mean i get we're kind of into the finale and it has to keep the pace going but it's sad that like nance and kimmel kind of die in that plane crash and you just don't see them i also want to say this scene where they're plowing across this like watery field and then they have ford and then cage in this kind of like apparatus shooting what does it remind you of aliens no. Well, yeah, I guess a little bit. I guess a lot of this movie reminds me of Aliens, but... Oh, The Matrix. Oh, yeah. Like, kind of being in these, like, suits and maybe especially the second and third movies. Yeah. Right? But kind of, like, these mechanical, like, tentacly type... Yeah. Um... Like the yeah, the monsters coming after and like the machine gunning. The machine gunning. That is funny that, like, there's a lot of similarities there, but I didn't... I wouldn't have made that connection, but I see why you thought of that. Especially in in this scene where they're like kind of moving the ship and then they have someone in like the mech suit to like shoot at them. Yeah. I don't know why. I was just like, oh my God, the Matrix. And kind of this desperate last stand kind of circumstance, right? Yeah. So they get uh, all the way to the Louvre. I love how like... Tom Cruise takes a really mean tumble down some debris. And I love that, like, they show him roll to camera facing. So, like, they're like that was Tom Cruise <laughs> who just took that fall, presumably. And then they go down, like, an elevator shaft and they have to, like, blow it up behind them. So now it's just him and Rita. Yeah. And they see that, like, where the opening to the Omega is, but it's being guarded by an alpha. Mm-hmm. Cage is really hurt. Rita is insisting, like, let me distract the Alpha so you can, like, kill the Omega. And I love this moment because, like, Cage wants to be the one to sacrifice himself. And Rita's like, listen, we're both dying. Yeah, she's like, neither of us are getting out of here. And I kind of love acknowledging that, that, like, we both know what we're in right now. Yeah, and it doesn't matter if I distract the Alpha. Like, we're both dying. Let's just do what we're going to both be best at. Yeah. And you're in no condition to, like, run and distract the Alpha. I love this moment between them, and I just want to, like, give some lines here between them where um, she says, thank you for getting me this far. 
you're a good man, Cage. I wish I had the chance to know you better. Yeah. And then they kiss. And then they kiss. And I don't know, like, it is romantic in a way, but it's more just, like, sweet. Yeah. Like, I don't know. They just have, like, a really good bond. It feels like they understand each other. Yeah. And I love this acknowledgement of, like, her saying that he's a good man. And I think that's the growth from him that we've been watching. Yes. Right? Because he starts out as such a slimy piece of shit. Yeah. And then seeing her, and she's such a strong and cool and amazing character. We know that immediately. So for her to say that about him, like, you're a good man, yeah. means something. It, yeah, it's very touching. It's a great scene. And like you said, really showing the growth of Cage, like, morally and emotionally. So Rita takes off to distract the Alpha, and she ends up getting taken out by him, and uh, Cage sadly kind of sees it happen in the distance. He dives into the water because this thing is submerged, like, really deep in the water. How did it get there? I don't know. Did Yeah, did the water flood Paris? Like, what's happening? Did it teleport? <laughs> like, why is it, like, under a parking garage? I don't know, Ian. Uh, he's able, he has some, um, what are they? Grenades. Grenades. And as he's, like, killed by the Alpha coming to try to, like, protect the Omega, he's able to drop the grenades into the Omega. And we get the classic cliche of, I already pulled the pins. Yes, I got the pins, The baby. reveal of, I'm holding the pins. Yes. And so the grenades blow up and kill the Omega. We immediately see this shockwave kind of emit, killing the Alpha, killing all the other mimics that are in the area. We, we see cage floating in the water we see the the gross blood of the omega seeping upward Mm -hmm. surrounding cage and then snapping awake to basically the beginning of the film when he was in the helicopter before he got he had that confrontation with the general and i don't know if this makes sense okay no adina i think it does and i have i literally this only (laughs) clicked for me for the first time okay watching it this time so When he killed the Alpha at the beginning of the movie the first time, he got reset 24 hours from that point, roughly, right? Okay, yeah. Or however long the time loops are. Yeah, I don't know exactly, but roughly 24 hours, right? Then he killed the Omega, but this was happening earlier than the invasion, Mm. right? Because the whole goal was to kill the Omega before the invasion happened, because it's nighttime. Yeah. So he kills the Omega... Like, let's say uh, three hours earlier or four hours earlier than he killed the Alpha Alpha the first time. So he wakes up that many hours sooner than his time loop was originally. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but why does he loop at all? Well, because I think the Omega has the same properties that the Alpha does, right? Yeah. That ability to time loop. So, like... So does he have that power now? Is he the Omega now? Well, so he probably... Well, that's a good question if he'd have that... Because, like, the power, he's not tapping into the Omega anymore. Like, he is the Omega. Yeah. And all the mimics are dead, though. Yes. So, and the Omega is still dead. Yeah. Like, we looped back, but the Omega is still gone. I find that very interesting. Yeah, like, the um, killing the Omega, like, had a shockwave that killed them when he woke up, basically, again. Like, yeah. there's just news stories about, like, all of the mimics have just dropped dead. <laughs> Which is kind of, I mean, like, it is very... Uh, convenient in a lot of ways but i think there's enough that makes sense about it that you can buy that you're like 
oh, okay, like, I'm following along with what's happening. Yeah, and I think it, I think it works for the most part. You obviously have questions, but I, I, I mainly accept it. Um, but we see that the mimics are all dying or dead, and humanity has a hope now. And then we see Cage, who's back to being a major, right? He's not being thrown back into battle as a lowly private. But we see all the characters that we saw die earlier be alive. I love this just kind of metaphorically how like he's earned his rank back. Yeah. He's like a major again, but like having earned it, having actually (laughs) gone through it. Yeah, but no one knows what he's done. Yeah, yeah. And so we see like J-Squad and it ends with him. And I love this so much because we just said how like everyone's like kind of saluting him and being real respectful of him. And then he approaches Rita who stands up and goes, what do you want? (laughs) (laughs) Classic Rita. And I think that's kind of why he laughs at the end. Yeah. Is like, she is still the same, right? Yeah. And that's it. That's where it ends. And also, I have to say, I don't know why I love the song at the end. I know. It is Love Me Again by John Newman. (laughs) I don't know why, like it hits. It, it does. It really does. I think it's kind of a fun song, and the movie's mostly fun, and mm-hmm. it's just it's a good vibe. I really love that. In the end, we just like cut on him smiling because he's just you can tell he's just happy to see her. Yeah, right. Like she's alive, yeah. and that's like that means that's all that he cares about. Yes, and I mean obviously the song is uh, "Could You Love Me Again?" Yeah, right. And so yeah. kind of a, a funny like way to kind of put a period on the end of the movie. Obviously what everyone's thinking, right? Yeah, are they well, going to get together are now? They gonna, are they going to be able to reconnect? Which, but they but they ended on that perfect moment. Yeah, it's so well done. So good. Shall we get into the finale of the book? Yes, let's talk about the book. So at this point in the story, Cage knows that Rita knows about the loop, and so he kind of confronts her, and he tells her the answer to her tea question. Yeah. Which I think was Rita's it was Rita's plan that like if I maybe talk about this thing if anyone's experiencing the loop they can like give me a sign I don't know if that's exactly how it works or not she kind of talks about having like a question or like a conversation topic that she wants to have in mind in every battle in case she talks to someone yeah but yeah it's a little confusing because I wasn't sure if Rita was looping or not and I felt like she had to be looping if him answering her question was assigned to her. But I guess if she had a pre-planned question, then whether she's looping or not, she would understand that he is. Yeah, and it seems like she's not looping. I so. don't think she's currently <laughs> looping. Her looping stat her looping status is off or, or non non-existent. They talk though, and she tells him about the looping and about how they have to kill the antenna and the backups and the server. And so that's kind of their plan. And they have this battle together. And Cage talks about, because we're more in his perspective now, how they're on the battlefield and they're like in perfect harmony in killing the mimics together. Yeah, they just like know each other's movements. They're able to kind of like help each other and defend each other. And like they're just a, a dream team. Something weird begins to happen, though, where... It seems like they're going to accomplish their mission of killing the servers. Yeah. When suddenly he kind of like blacks out and then wakes up. And he's still going through the loop, even though he doesn't think he died or was killed. He's just like 
still looping in the day. And so he doesn't know what he's doing wrong or like what the problem is. Yeah. And I don't know if we know. Is that Rita dying? Maybe. Maybe if she dies, he also loops? I I took it as just like a problem and that maybe is it has to do with something we find out later, but I don't know the context fully. Because if it's her dying, maybe that would explain it. But but it also didn't seem like she died. In no, I don't feel like that's yeah, what's happening. It's unclear. <laughs> <laughs> but so then he has to talk to Rita again for the first time for her, obviously second time for him, and talk about the time loop thing. And he tells her what happened in the battle that they just had and how it didn't quite work. And she is kind of like, let's get out of here. Yeah. And they end up going and they're kind of by the ocean and they have this talk and she talks about her life a little bit to him. They share some, you know, moments together. And then they also have this scene where they end up having this sour plum eating competition, (laughs) which I love. I know. It was kind of funny where like she tries one and thinks it's disgusting and then he eats one and it is bad, but he's like pretending that it's like fine. (laughs) And so then she's like, okay. And then she gets one and like, "Mm, yeah, that's good. And then he's like, yeah, I'll have another. And then they just get in this eating competition. And then the whole cafeteria is watching. Yeah. (laughs) And it's funny too, because like earlier in the book, uh, Cage got in a fight with this guy and someone observing the fight was like, lock the doors. We don't want anyone interrupting this. And during the plum eating contest, someone has the exact same line. They're like, lock the doors. We don't want anyone interrupting this. Not the plum eating. <laughs> it's, it's very odd. And I mean, once again, this kind of makes me feel, this gives me anime vibes where sometimes like it can just divert into like a fun, wacky, like <laughs> side adventure, even in the darkest of stories. Right. Cause so much of this book and this story is like, Really dark, gritty action, like talking about like over dramatic, very yeah, very melodramatic, and then it's like a goofy plum eating competition. <laughs> uh, but I like it. I maybe just wish there was like more of this kind of stuff throughout. Yeah, I agree. It's fun. Uh, then they end up going back to Rita's special like area just for her, and they maybe fuck. They, I, I like to believe that they It's fuck. left to the imagination, but they wake up together. And he, so. he woke up very well rested. <laughs> <laughs> we get another scene, too, where uh, Rita is making coffee. Yeah. And it's kind of explained that, like, because of the toxic nature of the mimics in the book and, like, how they've invaded a lot of, I think, like, n- not third world, lesser developed countries where, like, a lot of coffee is produced that coffee is, like, this commodity. Super rare now. Super rare. And so she has, like, actual coffee, and she's, like, making it and showing him how to grind it (laughs) because her dad really liked coffee. And so it's kind of this, like, emotional connection she has. And I'm like, once again, we're getting so much out of Rita. And nothing out of Cage. And nothing out of Cage. (laughs) But it's a great moment, and he tells her, like, oh, I'll have to take you out somewhere to get, like, really good green tea when this is all over. Mm-hmm. And it's like very sad, but like kind of sweet too. Yeah. They're about to drink their coffee when suddenly they're they're ambushed by the mimics, which has never happened in any of the time loops before. And Rita kind of says like, they must know what we're trying to do and they're trying to stop us. Yeah, because she mentions like the mimics are also looping. And this is an interesting thing that I felt like, I don't think the movie needed to do this, but it could have. It would have been interesting if, like, 
things begin to change, right? Yeah. And I think the book could have explored this more. Like, if the book was going to go that route, because, like, that would be unsettling, right? Like, you've lived this day hundreds of times now, and then suddenly something's different. And it's like, what the fuck is going yeah. on? Like, that's weird. And, you know, when when they're attacked by the mimics, when the base is attacked, like... Cage is, like, freaking out. Yeah. Like, he's, like, having a, a crisis because he's like, this has never happened before. I don't know what to do. Yeah, because it's it's different than anything that's happened before. And Rita is able to get him kind of out of this freakout stage and is like, it's the same thing that we've always done. We just have to fight them. And I actually really love this scene because it shows them trying to get into their suits, right? Everybody is fleeing. It's total chaos. And then between the two of them, they're able to kind of, like, rally the defenses, right? People are like, oh, they're fighting. There's like the full metal bitch, right? Like there's our symbol of hope. And so they get into their suits and then everybody's fighting. And then it kind of turns the battle around. Um, And they're able to kill the antenna, the backups and the server. And everything seems great until Rita suddenly starts attacking Cage. Yeah, he was like, at first he's like hit by something and he doesn't know what's happening. And then suddenly he realizes Rita is attacking him. And he's like, what the fuck are you doing? And she's like, exactly what it looks like I'm doing. And they kind of have this conversation while she's trying to kill him. And this is where we get more information that I just don't (laughs) quite know how to work out in my head. But I will say, despite not understanding it, the stakes are still established. Yeah. She basically explains, because we both have this power, we've become... The antenna. The antenna, which I don't get that part. (laughs) But she says something like, we are going to be trapped in this loop together unless one of us is killed right now. And essentially, one of them has to die. And she's kind of like, let's just fucking fight it out out and find (laughs) out. Fight it out and find out uh, who, who gets to, like, walk away from this. So, like, once again... I don't understand the stakes. No. Because, like, it's unclear. I think it relates to Cage having those blackouts earlier. Yeah. Where he wasn't dying, but he was resetting the day, which I think is the explanation for why they couldn't just keep living. Because, you know, you're like, well, if they just don't die, they'll just keep living, right? Yeah. And I think the explanation is, well, at some point, probably pretty soon they will black out and re-experience the day. Mm. Even if they don't die, right? Yeah. But somehow one of them being killed will stop the loop. So (laughs) now they're in this fight to the death with each other. And uh, it's very sad. I know. And Cage doesn't want to kill Rita, but eventually he's like, she's going to kill me. So I need to fight her. The explanation we're given as to why he's able to win is that he's studied her moves so much that he knows her fighting style. I kind of buy this, actually. Yeah. Because, like, Reed is a way better fighter than him, and it's, like, mentioned multiple times, and, like, he's barely, like, evading her. But, yeah, the explanation is he's like, I learned to fight by watching you. So he's studied her, whereas she's just naturally a good fighter, right? So... Like, even though she's maybe more skilled than him, he knows just more about, like, her specifically. So he's able to land a lethal blow against her. And she's dying. And she says something about, like, I knew I was going to die when the day began or something. Yeah. I, I, 
I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't either. know if she let herself be killed or she just knew that he would be able to defeat her or what. But yeah, I guess she knew the whole time she was going to die and at least wanted to have a good fucking some coffee. She got one <laughs> of those things, Ian. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, not the coffee. But uh, yeah, it's very sad. And then we just have, you know, Cage kind of resolving to continue where she left off, right, to help them win the war against the aliens, against the mimics, and to she painted her suit red and he'll paint it blue because blue is her favorite color and he'll be the symbol that the army needs now. Yeah, and so it kind of just ends with him kind of just, I think, being more isolated in a sad way where he's like, this is my burden. It's very fridging, I would say. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is a little bit, isn't it? Yeah. He's just like, I'm committed now to this cause and Her I will. Her death will be like my emotional like yeah. backstory now because I didn't have one before. <laughs> <laughs> this is my origin as a human being. Yeah. And I mean, like, it's not like the film where they defeat the mimics by the no. end of the story. It's just like the war is going to continue. I wonder if he was going to write a sequel to this or something. I don't know. I felt like it could have used a sequel. Like yeah. We get info about like the invading forces and the, these aliens and like obviously he's not done looping and yeah, like other characters are like mentioned like Shasta uh, but it's unclear. Like she doesn't play that big of a role, and I could see her continuing in a, a, a different story. So yeah, I don't know. I don't know. That's the end, though. That's the end. That's the end of both versions. And Adina, which one's better? The movie. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was uh pretty pretty obvious. Yeah. After, I mean, we began the whole episode by raving about how good the movie was. (laughs) I mean, to be fair, we're probably a little biased, right? Yeah. We watch this movie constantly. We watch it a lot. We really like it. Um, It's just a really enjoyable action, funny movie. So funny. Just so well made. Well plotted. I think Tom Cruise is amazing in it. Emily Blunt's awesome. Like Bill Paxton is fantastic. It just does what it's doing so well. Yeah. And I like the book. I think it's interesting. I just had some problems with the explanation for the looping that I didn't understand it. And then, like you said, Cage doesn't really have a backstory. Yeah, you know, this movie, this book was such a weird ride. Like, at first I was reading it and it was so much like about Cage is just boring and he's just talking about tactics and explaining everything like this is how the mech suits work and like this kind of ammunition and this is what this thing does and like uh like just very i was like oh god is this gonna be the whole fucking book <laughs> but then it's not and sometimes it does interesting things with the time loop sometimes there's humor in it other times it's just like way melodramatic uh like yeah, it's kind of uneven. It has some interesting ideas, and sometimes it feels like it really knows what it's talking about, that, like, it really thought through, like, oh, what's the state of the world like? You know what I mean? Like, these other countries, like, coffee, you know? Coffee isn't a thing anymore, and... Yeah. Um, but then it's like, also, here's what these aliens are up to, and how nano, how they sent nanobots to destroy <laughs> us, and that doesn't ma- matter at all. Like, it was just such a weird, uneven ride. And, like, I didn't hate it. I found that it's the the size of it to be weird like the light novel format right yeah like it almost felt like it needed to be longer and just better paced or shorter and like less in the weeds about like the world or maybe building. just a manga right or, or just the the manga i think it could have worked 
Um, yeah, like, I didn't hate it, like you said. It was just very uneven. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, I mean, like, if you like light novels, if you've read any before and haven't read this, like, you might like it. I don't know. Or but. check out the manga. We got it, and I just kind of flipped through it. Um, and it's basically the exact same. They add some stuff and take away some things to it, obviously. But I think it's an enjoyable manga. I, I do think it works maybe better as a manga. I will say, though, and maybe this is just because I'm not used to reading manga. Uh, you know, a lot of this is people in mech suits fighting aliens with, like, big battle axes. And the art is really well done. Like, it's really good art. But... It's black and white, and sometimes I look at panels, and I'm like, what the fuck am I looking at? Yeah. Like, it is just too much. gray mechanical shapes <laughs> and, like, action sounds, and I have no idea what is happening panel for panel. Like, it's too uh, convoluted in terms of, like, the visuals, right? It's very busy. It's very busy, thank you. It's very busy and cluttered. Yeah. And maybe if you read a lot of manga, or, like, maybe it's a style thing, like, maybe you people can read it and are fine with it. Uh, I had trouble, like, making heads or tails of what I was looking at half the time, so. Mm -hmm. Yep, it's a good book, but we're gonna have to go with the movie. Absolutely. Uh, let's find out what our patron Tony, who suggested this, has to say about the book-movie combo. So Tony says... Like most people in America, I saw the movie first. Unlike most people in America, I saw it in spite of Tom Cruise. He's fine. I don't think he's a great actor. Uh, and says, anyway, I see some of his movies sometimes, and often it is because of his co-star, as was the case here, or because I think he will not be playing Tom Cruise. Magnolia is his finest performance. Even Tropic Thunder, which is problematic <laughs> for all the reasons, forced him to play something else or someone else. In Edge of Tomorrow, he starts by playing Tom Cruise and has to stop at the end of the first act. <laughs> Loved it. So smart. <laughs> Emily Blunt is so good in this film, and Bill Paxton does what he does. It was so freaking great until the final 10 minutes or so. Meh. When I saw it was based on a book, I picked it up in Hot Damn. I read it in one sitting. Not only do I think it is great, as I love a well-constructed time loop, but it gave me almost the ending I wanted. I have some problems with some of the motivation there, but the author gave me the ending that was more courageous. As a writer, I just thought it was wonderful. I've read it a few times now, and I'm enthralled every single time. It is so hard to pick between the book and the film for me, but in the end, as much as I love the book, which I really do, it is Emily Blunt who pushes this movie pushes this to the movie only because she is the action hero I wish I had as a teenager in the 80s. Meanwhile, I can't imagine Tom Cruise liked being shown up once again by his co-star, but it works for me. <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds like Tony liked the book more than we did, but um, ultimately I think we both agree that the movie is better. Yeah, I mean, maybe if we got a better grasp mentally of like the time loop structure... We would have enjoyed it more, but yeah. it was maybe just beyond us. I don't know. Honestly, it would have been really hard to beat the movie for me because I love this movie. I know. We are really <laughs> big stands of this movie. And you know what? I, I love Tom Cruise in it. Yeah. I think he's great. I think he's great, too. <laughs> All right. Let's do lightning round. Let's get into lightning. So first off for lightning round, I need to mention that the character Shasta in the book, who is like an engineer and helps uh, Cage get his axe and had designed the axe for Rita as well, is mentioned as being a Native American. Oh, God. And I then know where this there's is going. a part where they're being attacked on the final day when he and Rita, like, wake up together, where she shows up and she's in an Indian headdress and war paint. And Rita's like, why are you dressed like this? And Shasta implies that she was being bullied 
by other people on the base and that they forced her to dress up in this costume as a mockery of her ethnic identity. Yeah, and I think it's supposed to be played off, not for laughs, but like Shasta is a character who's kind of timid that like people can kind of like mess with easily because she's like, oh, you know, and like, and so I think it's supposed to be like, oh, that Shasta, you know, you can get her to do anything. But I'm like, that's it's like, really messed I up. I hate crime. Yeah. <laughs> it's super messed up. I don't love it. I don't love it. Okay, Adina. Do you remember when we first saw this in theaters? Because something really weird happened. Oh, I forget. So we saw this, you know, we went to the theaters, we sat down, and uh, the, the trailers began to play. And all the trailers playing were from, like, five years ago. Oh, yeah. And we sat there, because, like, a trailer for, I think, like, the original Star Trek, or not, you know, the um the J.J. Abrams' first Star Trek movie played. And I was like, this is, what? This is, like, the old one. And then, like, another trailer and another trailer. And we were like, is this, like, <laughs> a marketing thing? Like, because I know the movie deals with, like, time <laughs> looping. Like, are they trying to, like... Mess with us? Screw with us? (laughs) Uh, Like, we had no idea. And then the movie just began, and I'm pretty sure, like, it was just some weird fuck up. Like some fluke of the theater. Like, maybe they lost the trailers and were just like, find trailers to play. I have no idea what happened, but yeah, all the trailers were from, like, five years ago. Like, it was a while. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) I forgot about that happening. Yeah, do you remember? We were just like, what's happening? We were so confused. I think that wraps it up uh, for lightning round for us. And thanks again to Tony, our patron, for suggesting this episode to us. If you have a suggestion of an episode you'd like to see us cover, the quickest way to do that is to become a patron. So patrons at any level uh, get that benefit. And then you also get our um, monthly bonus episodes. We forgot to mention it up at the top, but we're doing a bonus episode this month on other time loop films. Yes. Because this is such a trope now. Um, We're definitely doing Groundhog Day and maybe some others. So uh, get excited for that and be a patron if you're not, if you'd like to hear it. Yeah, just become a patron and you'll get access to that and our all of our other bonus episodes. Uh, If you are listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, Subscribe uh, to get notifications about new episodes when they come out and also leave us a star rating and or a review if you would be so kind. It really helps with our uh, ranking and the data and all that stuff. All that jazz. Uh, If you want to find us on social media, the fastest way is to go to CoverToCredits.com and we have links to Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as long as it's still a thing by the time (laughs) this episode comes out. Uh, Yeah. Uh, Thanks again for listening to this episode. We'll see you next time. See you next time. Bye. Bye.